0: A few weeks ago, we said that as you read uh, the Gospels, so as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, if you read through looking for the thing that Jesus talks about most, it will become crystal clear to you that what he talks about most is the kingdom. Especially when you read the Gospel of Matthew, uh, nearly 50 times in 28 chapters, he talks about the kingdom. So what he talks about all the time in some sense or another, is the kingdom of God. So we said a few weeks ago that the story of the Bible is really a story about kingdoms. And we took some time a few weeks ago to establish the framework through which we see the kingdom of God coming to earth. And then we asked the question, what does it actually mean to live under this king's reign? So in answer to that, we said that an encounter with Jesus forces every single one of us to deal with the core issues, the darkest parts of our character, and to allow his mercy, and to allow his love, and to allow his wisdom to redefine who we are, to change the way that we engage with our Heavenly Father and with the people around us. So that's how we got into this topic back on December 1st. Then a couple weeks later, we looked at some verses in Matthew 13 where Jesus is really into some kingdom teaching. And he tells story after story, each time saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom that lands smack in the middle of our everyday lives. So even here, Jesus said, in the hardness and the mess of life, his kingdom is the way that things really are. And Jesus' kingdom invites us to immerse ourselves in the whole gospel that he came to bring. So we get to listen to and consider and think through the incredible possibilities of kingdom living as Jesus taught it. Now the practical promise of our faith journey is this, that as we live in faithfulness to Christ the King, his reign will have a transformational effect on us. It will change change everything about us. And anything less than that is not what Jesus came to earth to tell. Part of the problem is we are so inclined, us church people, we're so inclined to make things happen for God. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that situation or kind of approaching things that way. Well, what he really wants to do is he just wants to invite us to live in a dimension that is already here. He's just inviting us to be a part of what God is already doing. So we talked about the tension that describes life in the kingdom. Tension, tension helps me understand a kingdom that is already here and also not yet fully here. Because both are true. And in a kind of mystical but powerful way, the, oh, I got that, the condition of your heart radically dictates what the kingdom is going to look like in your life. So let me just back up and repeat that the condition of your heart radically dictates what the kingdom is going to look like in your life which demands that we ask of ourselves what kind of heart do I have and just as Jesus entered our world and he suffered and died to bring life you and I really are invited to do the same for others in his name you and I are invited to embrace the vision of Jesus and enter into our world as his representatives. So, in part one, we are in Matthew four where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. So that's in chapter four, and then in chapter five begins what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, or for the purposes of gaining a better understanding of what it means to do life in the kingdom of God. Uh, A couple weeks ago I said let's just call it Jesus' Manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God, which is kind of catchy. Uh, But maybe for the sake of uh, remembering it, we'll just call it the Sermon on the Mount. So last time, which was actually, I think, three weeks ago now, we took some time to dig uh, into the first 12 or 13 verses of Matthew, what we call the Beatitudes. And we looked at some of the things that we've taught and believed about the Beatitudes that aren't actually true. Sometimes our interpretation and our application hasn't been totally accurate. Um, For instance, uh, we said uh, three weeks ago that the Beatitudes are not virtues and they're not commands. So they just are. And sometimes it's what life deals us. And then uh, we ask the question, what would it look like for us to leverage our happiness on behalf of those who have less than us? And that's kind of where we left it last time. So today I want to continue to look at Matthew chapter 5, um, the next few verses. And I'm not sure how far in the, we're going to get into this over like today, or I have an idea for today, but I'm not sure where this is going to go for the next few weeks or how in depth, but for today we're going to start with verse uh, 13. And I don't know if you've, <clears throat> if you've ever been given a nickname or maybe had something added to your name because it rhymes. Oh yeah, you love those, right? Or if anybody's ever kind of branded you with something. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It can be a really good thing uh, or it, if it's a positive name or a really bad thing if it's a negative one. Um, I know some of you have nicknames and I'd like to talk about those right now. Some of you are, <laughs> some of you are proud of your nickname. Some of you are thinking, how did you know about my nickname? Uh, You'd better, you know, you're like, you better not say it out loud right now. Um, If you're an athlete or you were an athlete, it's a good chance that maybe your teammates gave you a a nickname at some point. I remember when Ben was playing youth hockey, um, and at like 11 he could outskate not only all of his teammates but his coaches and had to demonstrate drills to his coaches, but it was one of those deals. So he had a coach who called him Wheels. Uh, and then a few years later in men's uh, league, uh, as he was skating by uh, opposing team's bench, he heard, that kid's got wheels. So it's like, no, I am wheels. But anyway, they didn't know that. Uh, a few years ago, uh, when dad, I mean a few years ago, when dad was playing hockey in uh, Old Town in Orno, his nickname was Tank. I don't know why, I have no idea why. Um, I'm not sure, but, um, Growing up, my brother had a nickname. I can say it, right? I don't know why either. I know, well that's what I wrote right in my notes. His, his nickname was, unofficial nickname was Bones. And I wrote, I don't know why. And I've never figured that out. It's not that uh, clear to me. But anyway, I had a couple nicknames, so let's just interest the full disclosure. I had a classmate growing up that was, he loved to give everyone nicknames. He wasn't quite right, but that's another story. My best friend's name was Blair. So on a good day, he got called Blue Blairie Pie, which he hated, uh, but if this guy, the nickname giver, really wanted to get under his skin, he would call him Blair, Blair Naked, little Blair Naked, which Blair hated more. So um, some kids called me Toad, which I understand is a derivative from my name. I get that, It's a ref- I mean, that was just, it just was there for the taking. Uh, I didn't answer to that either, by the way, just so you know. Like I don't answer to it, I never did, and I won't, so I don't answer to that. But this kid who was the master nicknamer, um, for some reason, maybe because he didn't really get the reference, uh, called me Frog. (laughs) Or Froggy, on a good day. Then it evolved from there. From Frog, to Froggy, to Little Froggy, to Little Totus, to Little Totus McDougal, which was, (laughs) yeah, so it was one of my favorites for sure. But eventually we found out that he had a a family nickname too that he hated. So when the nicknaming got out of control or past annoying, we just called him Pickle. And that was the end of the names for the day. So anyway, sometimes we're labeled or we're given a nickname. When it's positive, I think it can shift our attention and shift our focus. And obviously that can happen negatively as well. And hopefully your experiences with that have been mostly positive. But the interesting thing is when you read the Bible, God used this tactic all the time. It seems like he was constantly adding to people's names or changing people's names, and he always did it in a way to try to give them a different identity and a different direction for their lives. So one of the more famous ones was Abraham. His name uh, was Abram, right? You remember that? And God says, from now on, you're going to be Abraham because you're going to be the father of a great nation. And by giving him a new name and changing his identity, he shifted Abraham's attention and his focus in the direction and the entire outcome of his life. A little while later, uh, Abraham had a son, and his name was Isaac, and Isaac had two sons, and one of them was Jacob, and the name Jacob means supplanter, or grabber, and there's a story behind that, and you can read it for yourself in Genesis 25. But Jacob would have 12 sons who would then become the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel, which is kind of weird, right? Um, Unless you are aware that Jacob's name got changed, right? Um, so this would, these 12 tribes of Israel would be the basis for the whole nation of Israel, for all the Jewish people. And it, that was the, the means by which the promised Messiah would come to earth. That was kind of the whole point to fulfill God's redemption plan. And of course, God knew all this and he knew the intent that he had for Jacob and for the nation. And He looked at Jacob's name and he thought supplanter or grabber. I don't think that's going to work as a father of a nation, especially the nation that I intend to bring the Messiah through. So he renamed him Israel, which means upright with God. And by changing his name, he changed the course of his life, and he set a different tone, and he set him due north on the compass for his life. So one of the most prominent characters in the New Testament is the apostle, um, you thought I was going to say Paul. But Paul's name was not changed. He had two names. He was a Jew and he was a Roman citizen. So his name was Saul in one setting. His name was Paul in the other setting. So I just messed with that whole story. I'm talking about the Apostle Peter. Peter was a name that Jesus added to the given name. name, The name his parents gave him was Simon, Simon, right? And Jesus says, you're going to be a major player in the church. You're going to be like a rock. And he gave him this nickname, Simon the Rock. That's right, just like Dwayne Johnson. That's right, (laughs) Simon the Rock. So he became Simon Peter. And Jesus added to his name in an effort to direct his life towards something that he knew Peter would ultimately do, become one of the pillars of the New Testament church. Now in today's passage of scripture, at the very outset of his ministry, uh, he's speaking to a group of people that are just kind of starting to embrace his teachings. He's just getting started. They are primarily uh, primarily Jewish people who had the Old Testament as a background. The Old Testament law and the view of God, that was their background. That was their worldview. And Jesus begins to uh, tweak some of the things, to say the least, to tweak some of the things that they had been taught. And in this incredible message, he brands them, and he gives them collectively a brand new identity. And in giving them this new identity, he was in a sense saying, this is not only your identity, this is your destiny. This is what you're going to accomplish. This is who you are going to be from this point on. So if you have your Bibles, if you haven't already turned there, or your Bible app, I'd love for you to turn to this passage so we can just kind of look at this verse together and so you can see it on the page, and it's going to be on the screen as well, but, (coughs) excuse me, this is the first chapter of three chapters that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because it was a sermon that was delivered on a hillside, kind of like a mountain, so that's why it's called that. You glad you come to church to get this kind of information? I mean, I mean, some deep study went into that one. By the time we get to verse 13, <coughs> Jesus is already uh, kind of into the sermon a ways. So let me tell you what Jesus said before he got to this part, okay? In case you weren't here a few weeks ago, you're, or maybe you're new to the New Testament, and this is a great place to begin, by the way, the book of Matthew. Jesus began to give to this group of people his his manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the broken reality of the kingdom of God. This is God's value system. This is what he's starting to establish. Here's how God views the world. Here's what God is like. Here's how God thinks this is important. And this is what God thinks is important. He says things like, if somebody wants something from you, share with them. He says, if somebody asks you to go a certain distance with them, go further. He said, when you're persecuted and you're treated wrongly for my sake, that's okay. God's paying attention. God knows about that. He said things like, if you hate someone, that's bad, even though it's an internal thing. Hate is bad, even if it's never expressed. He says the lust, if a man lusts after a woman, he says that's like adultery. Even if you never act on it, you need to get control of your lust. He took the Old Testament law, the Old Testament standard, and he jacked it up a few notches, and he's like, here's how God views the world. He says, you know what? Instead of revenge, you should forgive the people who've wronged you the people who've offended you, the people who've taken advantage of you. And he's beginning to replace their old way of thinking with this brand new way of viewing the world, how uh, they should view God, how they should view each other, because this would be the expression of this new covenant relationship that he was bringing to the world. And again, he sort of makes them the stewards of this incredible wealth of information. That here's how God views the world, here's how God views relationships, here's the way it really is, even though it's in contrast to what you've always believed, and it's in contrast to what the people around you are saying and doing. And once he moves in that direction, he makes this incredible statement, and he brands them, he labels them, and in doing so, he says, this is your destiny as a group of people who've decided to follow me. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, here's what he says. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt. <coughs> They knew the context of salt in their culture, okay? That salt wasn't a taste enhancer like it is for us, all right? They didn't think in terms of, please pass the salt. That's not what they were, this could use a little more salt. That's not what they were thinking at all. Food was a, uh, salt was a food preserver. It was the refrigerant of the ancient world, all right? That in essence, he's saying, you are the preserver of the entire planet, That your presence in your environment is like salt on meat. That the spoiling that's happening around you through the Roman Empire, you're going to be able to slow that. Not just because of of the things that you do, but simply because of your presence in the world. Because salt always makes a difference. And a little bit of salt goes a long ways and a little bit of righteousness goes a long way. In essence, he's saying this body of information I'm giving you, this worldview, these values, the, this way of treating one another by simply living out these values in your world and in your culture and in your uh, situation and your circumstances and environment, you are a preserving factor. You are the conscience of your culture. <clears throat> and they sat there and no doubt thought what many of us might be thinking as we begin to get specific about this. They thought, But who are we? We are. We are overtaxed. We have no financial leverage. We have no political leverage. We have no relational leverage. We are nobodies. We're Jews under oppression. We're God's forgotten people. What do you mean we're the salt, we're the preserver of the whole earth? Nobody's even paying attention to us in our situation. And Jesus uh, went right on because he knew that he was entrusting to this group of people a body of truth and a way of seeing the world that without it, the world would spoil quicker and ruin sooner. Now for those of us in the West living in Western culture this is a very difficult thing to truly appreciate because many of our values that we think are intuitive or innate are neither innate nor intuitive. They were taught to us There's so much in the fabric of North American society, not just American society, but I'm gonna include Canada as well in that North American society that we take for granted. But the reason these values are a part of our society is because 2000 years ago, Jesus introduced them within the context of, listen, replacing Old Testament law, and these values began to spread and they began to grow, and in many ways, this country was founded assuming certain values. So to us now, on down the path, they seem to be intuitive, but imagine this, imagine if all of those values were suddenly removed from the story of humanity. What if suddenly Christian values, we may call it the Judeo-Christian ethic, and I struggle with that because the Judeo part is based in Judaism, which Jesus was coming to fulfill. So I don't really subscribe to Judeo-Christian ethic. I subscribe to a Christian ethic because that's what Jesus came to bring. But what if all of that suddenly disappeared? What if there had never been a group of people that moved it forward and got it out of the first century? Can you imagine the kind of world we would live in today? <clears throat> you don't have to imagine, actually. Because when you look at con- the conflicts of the last I was going to say 30 or 40 years, but you could probably say the last couple thousand. Look at the last 20, 30, 40 years. Look at the civil war in Syria. Killing tens of thousands of civilians and leaving millions of people as refugees. Or the long-time conflict in Iraq between the Sunnis and the Shiites. Look at the conflict in Darfur, the genocide that's happened there. Think back to the 90s. In 100 days, almost a million people were slaughtered in Rwanda, a few years further back than that, the genocide in Guatemala that killed, killed over a quarter million people, displaced 1.5 million more. Look at those kinds of conflicts in, in other parts of the world, and we think, how can a, tr- a human being treat another human being that way? Just because they're born a certain, from a certain family, then, then it's okay to just like, wipe them off the face of the earth. And the reason we think that is because we believe that all human life has value, right? Ooh, that was really weak. We believe that all human life has dignity, right? We think everybody thinks that, but they don't. Because as followers of Jesus, this has very little to do with us either being born or naturalized Americans, okay? This is about as followers of Jesus, we are stewards of a worldview, we are stewards of a way of thinking that, that values human life. And You know what? You weren't just born with that. So I wonder why our founding fathers wrote the words that it is self-evident. We are taught and these values and it's passed down to us. This isn't something we're just born with. We're taught it. We've seen it modeled. And Jesus came into the world where this was not the rule, okay? Jesus came in a world where might made right, that the king was the law. He didn't make the law, he was the law. In some cases, he was to be worshipped, so he was God, he was a deity. The rich ruled over the poor, because that's just the way it was. The master can do whatever he wants with the slave. The man ruled over the woman. It was, all of that was just accepted. It was a world so void of the kind of values that we take for granted And into that world, Jesus said to this group of Jewish people who were squashed and oppressed, but who were starting to embrace his teachings because it was something so new. And he says, you are the recipients. You are the stewards of a brand new way of viewing the world. You are the preservative. You are the salt of the earth. Imagine a world where suddenly no one believed that all men and women are created in the image of God and consequently then have no value. We just assume that it's like part of being an American but it has really nothing to do with that. It has to do with like some very passionate people have had to work extremely hard and risk everything and in some cases life itself, many of his listeners life itself to get culture and civilization to a place where this is something that we live by. Think about even in the story of our country, want let's talk about that. The people who've had to pay a great price, the people who've had to sacrifice reputation opportunity, and in some cases their very lies, to get to a place where equality is becoming more and more an American value. Let's talk about equality. We we quickly forget that it hasn't always been this way. It wasn't that way for women for the first couple hundred years in America. It wasn't that way for black slaves in the first 100 years of America. It wasn't that way for Native Americans. It wasn't that way for blacks long after they were freed. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that equality is somehow an innate American value. It isn't. So where do we get this idea from? That we're created in the image of God, therefore we're all equal. It's not intuitive. It's not innate. I'm telling you. It began this day when Jesus took the values of Judaism and began to replace them with the values of his kingdom, brought the perspective of his heavenly father uh, into the conversation and said, you are the recipients of this idea that men and women are equal. They all have value, rich, poor, slave, free, men, women, black, white, Hispanic, immigrant, legal or not, straight or gay, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, Republican, Democrat, or somewhere in between. all are." Equal. Equal and all have value. Whoa, I'm not one that normally looks for a response, but did I just go into left field? Or are we on? You on track with me here? Okay. Who? Heart skipped a beat there. You don't have to speak out. You don't have to respond out loud. I don't look for that, but um, I just want to make sure we're all there. This idea came from. Jesus, when Jesus spoke these countercultural words to his audience that day, it was to a culture that didn't value any of these things. And he said to them, you're the recipients, now you're the stewards of a body of truth, of a worldview, and if you don't take it and live it out, it will disappear from the world, and the world will continue to spoil and rot and ruin because you are the preservative, you are the salt of the earth. So there's the equality thing, and then what about this one? Forgiveness, not revenge. Do you know a lot of the law, when you read the Old Testament law, a lot of it was about revenge. A lot of it was just about leveling, like let's get even. But so, I'm gonna, you read it, a lot of times it goes way beyond getting even. It's about making somebody pay. Use your imagination for just a minute. What if the concept of forgiveness totally vanished from the face of the earth. <clears throat> Do you realize forgiveness is not intuitive? It is the opposite, okay? The reason, like you have to teach your children this, the reason you have a hard time forgiving is because it's not natural. So where did the idea come from? I mean that whole idea of you owe me but I'm canceling your debt, where did that come from? It came from God and it came in this moment through the words of his son Jesus. There are cultures today, as there were then, where the idea of forgiveness is not even a category. For Jesus' audience, it was at least an eye for an eye, right? It was pay, in a lot of cases, it was payback and more. And Jesus brings this idea that was buried in the layers and layers of laws and traditions. And he brings it out into the open to this group of people. And he says, forgiveness is the new rule of the day. And when someone slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other cheek. And by the way, you are the recipient. You are the steward of this principle. And if you let it slip away from your life, it will slip away from your environment, and it will slip away from the whole earth. So imagine a world where there's no idea, or concept, or teaching, or application of the idea of forgiveness. I've heard some really extreme stories over the years about forgiveness. But a few years back at the Catalyst Conference in Atlanta, I was introduced to the work of Jeremy Cowart. Uh, Jeremy's an award-winning photographer, he's an artist, he's an entrepreneur, he's sought after speaker, he's spoken at TEDx conferences, the United Nations, at conferences all over the country. In 2015, he released a video that I know a lot of you have probably seen that went viral and where he talked about his life story, he talked about his career as a celebrity photographer, <clears throat> and then some of his work exploring what he calls the intersection of creativity and empathy. I love that. And we've used this video in its entirety, it's like 25 minutes long in, in several environments over the last few years in, in church, but I just wanna show you a couple minutes. This is from the section where Jeremy's talking about one of his projects called Voices of Reconciliation. We're kind of jumping into the middle of this video, and it actually it'll, it'll end kind of abruptly too, because I'm just pulling this out. I'll post the whole the whole a link to the whole thing later. Because we're talking about counterintuitive, countercultural value of forgiveness in the kingdom of God. So watch this.
1: That project was so fulfilling that I decided to do it again. But this time, I thought it would be fascinating to shoot portraits of Rwandan genocide survivors standing with the people they killed their families and whom they've now forgiven. I call it Voices of Reconciliation. Jasper, pictured on the right, locked arms with Innocent on the left. Innocent killed Jasper's older brother during the 94 Rwandan genocide. Jasper and Innocent later reconciled while attending a workshop hosted by the As We Forgive Rwanda Initiative and today work together in an agricultural association. They are pictured in the exact spot where the murder took place. And they wrote on their arms, Love is the weapon that kills all evil. Honor on the right and Jean on the left were childhood best friends until the genocide erupted. Honor's parents and five cousins were brutally killed. Later, he discovered that Jean had participated in the murder of his cousins. Honor confronted Jean while in prison and remarked, Because I loved him very much, I wanted to forgive him. I wasn't scared of him, but worried that he would be scared of me. But here they are pictured at the scene of the murder. Jean is now helping Honor rebuild his farm and the home that he helped destroy in the first place. And they wrote on that tree between them, still best friends. So in this photo, Chantelle is on the left and she never thought she would forgive John, the close family friend who brutally beat her father to death. 14 years after the murder, Chantelle and John agreed to attend the healing and reconciliation workshop together. A year later, Chantelle publicly forgave John in front of their entire community, saying that her heart had been set free. John and Chantelle's story is featured in the Student Academy Award winning documentary, as we forgive. The sign that they're holding together says, shared past, shared future. Nasta, pictured on the right, survived the genocide by hiding in a banana tree while his entire family was chased by a mob into the lake, which is pictured here behind them, and they drowned there. Sean, pictured on the left, is the son of the leader of that mob. Although the father fled the country in fear, Jean begged Anasta for forgiveness during the trial, and Anasta, out of his Christian faith, forgave them all. So they picked up this huge rock that was sitting there by the lake, and they wrote on the rock, Forgiveness Releases Fear. This project ended up on the homepage of CNN, and it was the leading worldwide headline discussing the power of forgiveness.
0: There are parts of our world... where the only hope for peace is forgiveness. As you look at those cultures, and you uh, and maybe turn the eye onto our own American culture. The idea of forgiveness is not a value that's always spoken of positively. Like it's not somehow to be admired. Why? Because it's not intuitive. God gave us the idea through the Old Testament and through the Jewish writers and prophets, but it's not as prominent in the Old Testament. You have to dig around. You have to get through a lot of rules and punishments and retribution and payback, but it is there. But you turn the page into the New Testament, which is just another way of saying New Covenant, it's a New Covenant. It's an, it's, it's, it means the old one has been replaced, not added to, not in addition to, not here's some more stuff. The New Covenant is all about the idea of forgiveness and redemption and restoration. He said, this is to be front and center. This is to govern all of our relationships and all of our interactions with one another. And he said, be careful with that because if you let this slip away, it may not only slip away from your life, but it may slip off the face of the planet altogether because you are are the stewards of this truth. You are the salt of the earth. You are to be people who forgive so people know that there is such a thing. The marriage covenant as sacred, that was a new concept. That women should be given the same rights as the man, that in God's eyes, you're both accountable to him. That a woman is never to be the property of a man. Seems natural to us, but those were concepts that Jesus was introducing for the first time. And then Jesus said, now you need to live this out. People need to see it because if you don't live it out, it may never be seen. So in this fragile, fragile time, when a handful of Jewish people who had no standing at all in society, and Jesus comes up and he says, you gotta take a stand because there's a sense in which you are the hope of the whole world because you are stewards of a worldview, you're stewards of a view of God and a view of relationships and a set of values that you are the preservative, you are the salt of the earth. So let's finish reading this verse, verse 13. But if the salt loses its saltiness, this is an interesting thing here. In our English Bibles, there's a phrase that says, uh, loses its saltiness. In the Greek text, it's just one word, and it simply means a lack of wisdom or to make foolish. So there's a little play on words here in which Jesus is saying, look, you are the wisdom of the world, but if the salt is no longer salty, in other words, if the wisdom of this world becomes foolish... If the wise thing to do becomes the foolish thing to do, if what makes sense from God's perspective becomes something that is considered foolish, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Or literally, by what means can it be salted? So if this body of truth, this worldview, this paradigm, this lens through which we see the world, if it disappears, there's no hope because there will be no hope. It's no longer good for anything, Jesus says, except, and he digs way way down into their way of life, and they would have completely understood what he was talking about. He said, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So I think it's kind of an interesting thing. In this part of the world, this particular time, people didn't get their salt from the sea. They didn't get it from a mine. They didn't get it from Hannaford or Walmart or Amazon Pantry. They got their salt from salt marshes they got their salt from salt marshes. What they would do is they would go to a salty marsh where the salt water had come up and saturated the vegetation. They would find this vegetation that was now salty and like reeds and ferns and bark and anything that was saturated with salt water and they would take those things home with them and they would rub those things or rub that onto the, around the meat or on their fish or their vegetables and by doing so, the salt uh, that was in these plants would transfer to the meat or the fish or whatever and consequently it would preserve it. But over time, these reeds and these ferns that they'd extracted from the salt marshes would eventually run out of salt. They were no longer salty. So when those reeds, for example, were no longer salty, they would take them up on the roof of their house and spread it out on the roof. And the roof was like a part of the home. It was living space. They often slept on the roof. They entertained on the roof It was part of the house. So these formerly salty plants would help them seal the roof from rain and create a surface for them to walk on. So Jesus says, you know what it's like? Once you've used up all the salt out of something, what do you do with what's left over? You take it up to your roof, you scatter on the roof, people walk on it. It's not good for anything else. So he says to this group of people who had no idea what was ahead of them, he says, look, you're the hope, you're the recipients, you're the stewards of a view of God, a view of righteousness, a view of relationships that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. You are the preservative, you're the hope, you're the salt of the whole earth. Now, don't go out and live lives that are saltless. Otherwise, in terms of the value that you bring to the world, you are not contributing anything. You're not making any difference. Oh, I still love you. Your Heavenly Father still loves you. you know, like, you're still my children, but in terms of effect on the earth, if you're not salty, you're not serving any purpose. I don't know how you process that. I don't know how that lands with you, but it's not really that complicated. Did did you know that most of us who are Christians today, most of us who are Christ followers today, most of us are there because at some point in our lives we ran into and rubbed up against what Jesus might call some salty people. We were kind of doing our thing, living our lives, and you ran into this girl, this guy, this family, this couple, and they just seemed to see the world differently, and you were curious and you realize they viewed so many things differently. They they viewed morality differently. They talked to God and they talked about God like he was personal and they said things like I'm gonna pray for you and it didn't feel weird they just lived a different kind of life and they had a different set of lenses on and it attracted you. And then you began to ask questions. You began to have conversations. And the next thing you knew, you, you began to adopt their view of the world and of God and forgiveness and marriage and relationships. And as you look back and you ask, well, how did it happen? <clears throat> it's because a preserving agent in your environment, where you lived, where you worked, where you played, where you did business, someone was there and they were a preservative. They were the salt of the earth. Many of us could tell stories about being on the brink of making a really, really bad decision. And somebody who was a little bit salty came along with some truth and said, I don't think I'd do that if I were you. And it just really got on your nerves, but you paused. And you thought, you're just so old-fashioned, but you paused. And eventually you change your mind, you look back, and you're like, yeah, she preserved my life. She preserved my future. She preserved my relationship. Now, maybe you've been sitting here... Uh, well, I've been talking and you've been coming for a little while maybe and you're still trying to figure out the Christianity thing and the whole Jesus part and you've got questions and you're resisting a little bit but the whole reason you are even in this room this morning is because you were exposed to some salty Christians. You've been exposed to some people who understood this instruction of Jesus to go and be salt. Some followers of Jesus who were living out their values in a way that wasn't judgmental and it wasn't offensive and maybe that started to, started to kind of win you over and maybe you're not even sure uh, where you're at. You're not even sure really you want to be a church person. You're not sure you're all in yet. You're pretty sure you don't want to be a Jesus freak. And now you're in this situation where you've got lots of questions and your Christian friends aren't even really answering your questions right now. That In fact, when, when you ask them hard questions, they're like, I don't know, but you don't want to come to church with me. It's just like they aren't even engaging you intellectually. But you think, oh, maybe, you know, I'd, I'd love to have that kind of peace. I'd love to be able to go to bed at night and not worry about the things that I worry about and worry about roll these questions over and over and over in my mind, to somehow have that sense of trust that somehow God's gonna take care of me and we're all right and they're they're not answering my big questions but they see the world differently than me so uh, I hope they're right. And maybe you secretly hope you can be there someday. What is that about? That is the effect of salt. For the rest of you, you are the salt. it's the middle schooler high schooler college student you are the salt of your school you think I have no influence I have no all the kids I they don't even know who I am not the captain of anything I'm never gonna get my picture on anything I can't possibly make a difference yes you can because salt always makes a difference you may not see the difference but God says you make a difference because salt always makes a difference. And you may or may not have the influence that you think you should have, but salt, you're salt either way. If you'll just live out the worldview that Jesus introduced us here to here in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you, you're the salt of your workplace. You're the salt of Walmart store 1932. You're the salt of Northern Light Main Coast Hospital. You're the salt of Ellsworth High School. GSA and MDI High School and Ellsworth Middle School and RSU 24 and SAD 37 and Union 93 and any others that I may have missed You're the salt the Jackson lab. You're the salt in that car dealership You're the salt in your office with your patients with your clients with your customers You're the salt with your coworkers. You're the salt in your small business. You're the salt on that committee where you serve on that board on that team in your department you're the salt in your family, in your circle of friends, with your classmates, with your kids' friends. And you're like, I'm so far down on the ladder. My job's always at risk. How can I? That's okay. You're the salt. But I don't see that I'm making any difference. And God would say to you, you're always going to make a difference because salt always makes a difference. And the fact that you are there living out the values of Jesus' kingdom always makes a difference. <clears throat> Maybe you're way up in management and you've got people that report to you and you've got people that get nervous in your presence, You've got the ear of the head honcho and you've definitely got influence. Oh, you're the salt. Now what if I ask you this scary question? If I'm the salt of my workplace or I'm the salt of my office, I'm the salt of my job site or the salt of my school or my team, what does that look like? How do I need then to live? Or how do I need to live differently? Where do I need to get serious about following Jesus? Where do I need to get more consistent? How can I be salt in my environment? What does that look like? And you're like, I'll try it. I don't think it'll make a difference. And I'm, salt always makes a difference. You may be the salt of your family. There may not be another Jesus follower in your family, and they may laugh at you, and they may think it's funny that you suggest you pray at the Thanksgiving table. They may have nicknames for you, and you may know in your heart that, you know, they're glad you leave the Fourth of July party early so they can have a good time, because when you're there, it's just kind of wait for you to leave. And you're like, Oh yeah, that's it. I'm not making a difference there for sure. Salt always makes a difference. And God has salted your family with you. Your presence makes a difference because salt always makes a difference. Whether or not you're making a noticeable difference, you are making a difference. So whatever our excuses are, whatever your excuse is, whatever my excuse is, Jesus' audience that day over 2,000 years ago on a hillside in Judea, they could have used that excuse to the 10th degree. They had no freedom, they had no leverage, they had no wealth. They had known nothing. Yet 2,000 years later, we're talking about it. You know why? Because a handful of those poor, oppressed people who had no political, financial, or social leverage decided whatever it means, we're gonna live out these values in the environment where we find ourselves. And whatever difference it makes is up to God because I don't see that it's gonna make any difference, but boy, we know, did it make a difference. Eventually, Rome, who initially tried to crush Christianity, adopted the values and the worldview of these followers of Jesus. So, how could that happen? Because salt always makes a difference. In our country, we're the salt. In our state, in our communities, we're the salt in our businesses, and our schools, and our families, we're the salt of the earth. And all we have to do is simply live our lives making decisions in the environments where God has placed us in keeping with the way God sees the world. And sometimes you can see the difference you've made, most of the time you won't. But rest assured, from God's perspective, you're making a difference. You're making a difference by simply being there because salt always makes a difference, and a little bit of salt goes a long way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom to know what to do with this verse. Give us courage to do something with this verse. For every student in this room, or maybe over in the queue, that thinks it's not going to make a difference, for every man or woman in a work environment that thinks it's not going to make a difference, for every person who's in a family and they're the only one and they're convinced it isn't going to make a difference, would you give us the courage to just trust you and be the salt of the earth? Father, this morning and this moment, we surrender our expectations. We surrender our preferences. We surrender our ideas of what we think this should look like. We surrender all of that. And we invite you to have your way in us and with us to breathe a fresh perspective into us, to stir us at the soul level, all for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. We trust God that even when we don't see the difference, that you say we're making a difference, that our presence makes a difference. Thank you for entrusting us with this incredible truth, and we invite you to show us how to live that out. In Jesus' name.